everyone, it's Rachel. You're listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. In this episode, I interview a guest who shares her experience with something we've called the Asian American Achievement Complex. We unpack what it is, as well as how it has impacted her career, her relationships, and her mental health. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for being on here today. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm excited. Today, we're going to be talking about achievement, success, and identity, all from an Asian American perspective. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. But I'm excited to get into it. So maybe you can start us off by sharing a little about your background and wherever you'd like to start with your journey. Yeah. So I'm someone who grew up with a very... I would say stereotypical Asian American immigrant set of values. Both of my parents are from mainland China and grew up in the time of Mao and communism. And if you're not born into these families that are part of the government and like these high class of people, there's really not much that you can do for yourself other than get a good education. And your Mm -hmm. education pretty much determined how much you were able to move up in society. And so my mom was a very driven person, studied a ton, which I think is very common among parents of Asian American millennials today, because of the fact that the only reason they got to America was probably because they were studying. Mm. And so she raised me with that notion that education was the way forward. You know, that was how she advanced in her society. And that's how I would advance in this new society. And with, you know, and the only reason why I went to America of all places was because it was the best education. That's why we're here. And so uh, it was it was very much a, a culture that my mom raised me in where success in school was just success, period. Pretty much school was like the epitome of existence, uh, particularly college. And it was like, there was no talk about what happens after college. It was just like, (laughs) you just do everything to get into the best school you can. And then I guess I assume that life is just a breeze from there and you just (laughs) go on your merry way. Hmm. And I should also say the reason I'm talking about so much about my mom is because my parents divorced when I was really young, like three. And then my dad, there was this whole other thing. So I don't have a relationship with him at all. I say this in context of, it was also this concentrated dynamic because she was a single mom raising an only child. And so it's not like she had another voice to balance out some of the things that she was passing on. It was all like, this is what I think. And then you are my only shot to get it right. Right. So... She did pass on a ton of these values to me growing up. And and I would say not necessarily explicitly. She was never like, this is the only way that you will be happy. But it's it's all the subtle things that parents do. Like, oh, that person's daughter went to this school. Wow. Or like, that person's son only went there. You know, you know it's just the mm-hmm. little comments here and there that really reinforce, oh, This is the way my mom thinks about people who follow this type of path. And this is the way my mom thinks about people who follow that type of path. Uh, And so even without having to explicitly say this is what's good and this is what's bad, it's just all the things you pick up as a kid about what your parents approve of. Yeah, all that signaling. Yeah, yeah. It is so deep, especially when you're young. And often we can't articulate 
these things or give names to them until we're our age, (laughs) which is why we're sitting here doing this now. But tell me, how did that signaling and that messaging around what it meant to be a good person, live a good life, how did that sit with you in your childhood growing up? Yeah. So the funny thing when I look back on it now is like, I think I was totally good with that because I think as I was growing up, it was really nice to just have an outline of this is what it means to be successful, which is basically to get A's in all subjects, but particularly the ones that are more hard subjects like math or science. And I was able to pretty much do that. And so then it gave me the sense of identity and self that was like, I'm doing good. This is what matters in life. And I'm doing it. Thumbs up me. I am killing it. And so, yeah. And that's such a reassuring framework to have as a kid, as a young adult, even as an adult, to know what's expected of you and to know that you have the means to accomplish it and to accomplish it. That's really a good feeling. That's security. That's fulfillment and identity. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very secure. It was like, I know that I'm safe and here inside this little cocoon of what my mom says is good. And because I can achieve all these things, I'm just so happy in this little like cubby hole. I will say college was me at my prime. I've proven that I am elite because I am at this school in the first place. So I'm just rocking it. And then chose a major right dead center electrical and computer engineering like this is a hard technical major and then got good grades in that major and I was like well then I'm doing the thing and then was even able to have time to make good friends and join clubs and groups and like through a crazy set of circumstances even though I wasn't I was planning to go to grad school but got derailed and ended up getting swooningly recruited by this big tech company on the west coast I was just on top of the world I'm like you know what I did college right I Mm. got the grades in a hard major I landed a job that made six figures right out of undergrad I made a ton of friends that are going to be lifelong friends and like I did all this stuff and then it was the most most ridiculous drop to rock bottom right after that, pretty much. Hmm. Um, So in my mom's world, basically the hardest thing you have to do or the thing you have to try to do the most is to get into a good school. And then once you get into a good school, the government will swoop in, find you a job. Your family will swoop in, find you a husband. Like you'll just magically, because you have this job and this husband, you know, have some kids and then live a life and it'll be like all happy. And so I I think that's just the narrative that I believed. And then once I was like, oh, okay, so now it's the time for me to like go out and be happy and live my life because I did all these things right. It was definitely a shock to me when post-college was not like that at all. Yeah. Not one bit. (laughs) Yeah, I can only imagine how great that disillusionment and sense of confusion and shock must have been when for 21, 22 years of your life, you've been set up with this narrative And all of a sudden, it's like a spell broke. And you have to reconsider everything you thought about your values, your identity, and your life. That's really hard. Yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me a little more about what those months were like when things started to unravel. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, so 
I think if my life in college, you know, especially maybe that last semester when I already had that job locked in, if if my life was like a 9.9 out of 10, uh, maybe I'm remembering incorrectly and I have some rose-colored glasses on, but I think I was pretty happy. But if life was that amazing then, then I think in just like a matter of a few months, moving to this new city and starting this new job, it just went like like flat to zero. I, I mean, can we go negative here? Like negative two, ne- four, 10, 25. Like it was, it was just very dramatic very quickly. And, you know, it's common to have a hard transition out of college, but I think I was just on such a high leaving college. And my ethos growing up was only ever like college is the foundation. And if you build it up, you are just set for life, smooth sailing. So it was just so much of a shock to me when I graduated and suddenly went from being a college student to be a young professional and realized I basically um, was, yeah, not not ready at all. Uh, discontentment with my job is where it all took root, I think. Uh, I was a PM, a product manager at a very large tech company, and the role was just not a great fit for me. Being a PM at a large company, you really just don't get to work on that big of a piece of pie. I mean, the stereotype, you're a small cog in a big machine is very true. And the the things that I paid attention to were tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of a much bigger product. And the job became a lot more about navigating the politics of a lot of the other people who were heading the, the small pieces of their part of the product. Uh, and then the team itself that I was on, the PM team just did not have a great culture. It was just a lot of people who were like a lot more aggressive than I was used to being. And that just wasn't a space that I was comfortable being myself in. And then, you know, from there, it was also like the whole company. I was working on a very consumer product. And then I was like, do I even care if this product gets a little better? But I was just working on so small of a piece of it that I was like, is my job really that meaningful? I am not convinced. Uh, and then and then at the time, I, I, I think all of this discontent with my job kind of fueled this discontent with the tech industry of like, I started to notice a lot of things I didn't like about the types of products that big tech companies were making. Um, of course, they provided a lot of good, which is why, you know, people use them in the first place. But they also had a lot of you know, subtle unconscious effects like Black Mirror. You know, I was all over that of like, yes, you don't understand. Tech tech just comes with these unintended consequences that we really should be paying more attention to. So it was just so many layers of like, oh, I'm not happy in my role or in my team or in my company or in the industry. But I, I mean, it's not like I had anywhere else that I wanted to be better. And I think that was part of it too. It, it was like, you know, they always say, find your passion. But I'm like, what if I don't know of, of a passion? And I mean, maybe I would say now that a lot of my passion was just like being good at things, like getting A's, getting those gold stars. And I mean, that doesn't, you know, lead you to a career. And so I was just super, just super lost in in my career. And uh, I think that would have been okay if I had had a strong network of support outside of work. But, you know, I found out super quickly that it's just really hard to make friends in the post-college world. And so, I mean, I was basically dropped into the abyss out of college and uh, it was very confusing and I, I didn't feel like I had people around me that I could really talk about it with. Wow. So you were navigating both 
a very difficult situation at work as well as finding it really hard. And I think any recent graduate would attest to the truth of this, that it is such a rude shock when you graduate and it is so hard to find and build a support network for yourself because everyone is busy, everyone mm-hmm. is spread out geographically, yeah, so many other reasons. But how did all this affect your perception of yourself or your mental health or your functioning? Yeah. So at first I was in denial for a long time. Everyone's like, ugh, new grads, like you're all so entitled and like no one likes their job, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's probably just me. And then as the months went on, it just didn't get better. And it actually just got a lot worse. And I got a Mm. lot more frustrated at work and like sad and lonely outside of work. I think it was around January that I, I think I was, I was walking just like hanging out in the city with my friend. This friend had had a pretty tumultuous teenage ship, teenage years. Uh, Her teenage years were filled with a lot of depression, anxiety, and grief. She ended up losing her mom and losing her boyfriend within a year of each other. And that was just a lot for anyone to handle in any lifetime. And it was just a lot for, for her, obviously. And so we were just walking and talking and then she was, you know, asking me how I was doing. And then I was like, I mean, you know, life is good. I don't really love this job, but like, oh, it's fine. And then I think eventually I was like, oh man, yeah, I get really upset. I cry all the time. I'm like pretty much crying every day. And she's like, wait, you're crying every day. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, it's fine, right? Like, it's just part of the process. And she's like, no, actually, I think that's not good. I think you should maybe, like, figure out what's going on because that's not that's not a normal response to, to life. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe. So I started being more curious about, like, okay, maybe I should get a therapist. I had a friend from church who had been telling me about a therapist that she went to. And so then I was like, oh, this is a therapist at our church, the church I was going to at the time. I'll just try them out. And it was basically terrible. So I think what was going on was a lot of tension within myself where I really wanted to quit my job. I think at that point, I had really honed in on like, the job is the problem, even though now I would admit that my whole life was the problem. But like at the moment, it was like, oh, if I just change my job, it'll just change a lot of things. And so I really wanted to quit my job. But then I mean, these companies really know what they're doing. They like give you all these incentives to stay. If you stay this long, you get this much of your stock vesting. And so they really know how to just keep stringing you along because the money just keeps getting better and better the longer you're there. And so I was like, if I leave before a year, I have to give up my relocation sum, which was more money than I, you know, had had before, like in one sum. And so then I was like, dang, I don't want to give up my relocation. So I should stay a year. And at that point I had been maybe there half a, what was September to, you know, February, March ish. Um, so I'm like, I, I can, you know, just tough it out for this next half year and at least not have to actively pay back a relocation sum. But then I was like, wait, I'm miserable. Is this worth being miserable? And I was just so conflicted. And I think what I was really looking for going to him was probably a lot of processing, like why I'm feeling this way. But like just a little bit of validation that if I'm feeling miserable, then maybe it is okay to quit, even if I have to give it back the sum and it looks back on my resume, et cetera, et cetera. And I basically got the opposite. Not that he explicitly said, no, stay at this job. It's a good job. 
But when we were talking about it, I remember in our second session, him saying like, you know, it's just, it's a hard decision to make because on one side, you have your happiness to think about and like how much you're enjoying it. But on the other side, if you stayed with this company, it would look better on your resume and it would be better for you to like have opportunities to learn. And then maybe you can move around the company and you wouldn't have to pay back this money. And he started enumerating on his fingers all of the ways that it would be really good if I stayed. And it just broke me. So like, I went back to my car after meeting at his office. And I just got so angry. And I was just like, you know what, this is just my problem. Like, this is just me. Because even my therapist who doesn't even know me doesn't even work for this company, like whatever, is recommending to me that I stay because there's so many good reasons. And so it was the fact that I'm thinking all of these things are wrong is just me. It's just my fault. And I like, started yelling at myself. I remember being in the car and like, actively screaming of like, why can't I just accept this? Like, why can't I just be happy in my situation. There's so many reasons to be happy here. And I'm so miserable. Like, why can't I just be better and like blaming it all on myself. And it got to the point where I just wound myself into a panic attack while I was in the car. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, am I gonna like crash the car? It was just you have so much like manic energy that I'm like, I think I'm gonna like crash my car right now. And I'm like, No, I can't crash. Like, that sounds dangerous. I don't want to hurt anybody else. I just want to like release this energy. And it just was so overwhelming. And at that point, I think I had had a panic attack or two before that. And I was like able to, people were there to calm me down. But then this just felt so out of control that that night I was like, I think I need to go to the ED. I can't, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I'm so, I'm so much in this emotion, which I think really to that point, I had kind of been denying. I mean, I knew I wasn't happy and I knew I was obsessively looking at other jobs and looking at other things I could do. And like, when I read my journals now, it's all like, one day I'm like, okay, I figured it out. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm just going to go and I'm going to teach math because that's like, you know, at least like the respectable thing to teach from an Asian family, obviously. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go and do it. And I'm just going to like be a teacher. And then, you know, a journal entry two days later is like, I figured it out. I'm just going to be a nurse. Like, you know, a nurse is like so hands-on, you can care and whatever. And then like the next page was like, I figured it out. I'm going to do this. And it was just, I mean, reading back on it now, I'm like, wow, I was really all over the place, just trying to reach for something that could bring me out of this. It was like a justifiable alternative. And so I had been for a while, not great, but also not admitting that I wasn't great. It was just like, yeah, it's not like really good, but I'm fine. And then it was after this panic attack where I like basically almost crashed my car. And then I was like, okay, I need to go to the ED because I don't trust myself around objects. And so I got admitted for a night and I didn't end up staying inpatient. And I uh, left after one evening and also, and that occasion learned how expensive it is to go to the ED. And I'm like, wow, never again. I mean, obviously, sometimes you can't control these things. But I'm like, wow, this is so expensive, American mm -hmm. healthcare. But then after that, it was a lot more clear to me of this is a problem. And I think I need to address it. And I need to like get the right supports around me to do that. So the mental health awareness came very slowly and then all very suddenly that day. Yeah, it sounds like you almost had to wait for your body to sound an alarm bell and be like, something yeah. is not okay. I could even feel the energy while you were recounting the story. <laughs> yeah. It was so interesting to me that the, the primary emotion, it, it sounded like you felt in the car was anger and anger directed at yourself. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the prior few months, you'd been talking about feeling sad and isolated. 
And then suddenly you were angry. Yeah. 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 I think the way that my mind had been like reciting the narrative to myself was you are in a great position and you're feeling like it's not great. Why can't you just accept how great it is and suppress all of these bad feelings? Because that would make everything so much easier. You already have all this good stuff that everybody is telling you is like really good. So why hold on to all of this negativity here? Just accept all the good. And I just like couldn't do it. Hence the emotional drama that basically ensued for the next year-ish. And then, I mean, continues Mm -hmm. today. But the thick of it was definitely in like the year-ish following that. I think a lot of the help came in the form of two key people. One was my therapist, Kelly, who was amazing. Kelly was really great, largely because she was Asian American herself. And I think she was also the child of immigrants. She really could relate to my story. And I have had therapists since moving from the West Coast. I've tried to find other therapists, but I've lived in largely non-Asian cities and have not been able to find an Asian therapist. And I'm not going to make it so one-dimensional to say that, like, if there's an Asian therapist, then I would get along with them. But I do think that in that time of life, because so much of what I was wrestling with was with this Asian American infused definition of worth in success and achievement and status, that having her just off the bat understand that culture was huge. It was just Mm -hmm. a lot of time saved (laughs) of me trying to explain it because she just already got it. And then the second person is probably my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, who we were doing long distance, which I'm sure didn't help me uh, feel welcome in the city for the first year that we were apart. But then he moved to the city for me, which was really great, partly because of my feminist side is like, yeah, it doesn't always have to be the woman moving for the man. The man can move for the woman. And I mean, he was going through his own stuff at the time, but... He was really, really key for me to like, just to have that support outside of the therapist's office. If I only had access to her once a week, he was there as like a, hey, it'll be okay for the rest of the week. And I think that was really, really huge. Yeah. Also, maybe I should mention that I did go on antidepressants. It was, if I had my, the worst of my, the ED visit and all of that in the spring, I tried to push through in the summer and switched teams at work after a year. So at that point, it was already fall, and then thought, okay, now I'm in a new team. Yes, I do the same job at the same company, but like, it's gonna be better, right? Um, And it was better for a little bit, just the excitement of all of the new stuff, and definitely the team was better. But later that fall, I was starting to feel a lot of the same feelings, and then did go on antidepressants. Uh, I went on sertraline, and took it for about six months. It ended up doing, I think as described for me, which I know is not everybody's story. And I know that for a lot of people, it takes a long time to figure out the right mix of medications and doses and all of that. But for me, sertraline worked at whatever dosage I was at at the time, well enough to just kind of stabilize me enough to do the work with Kelly and and myself, I guess, um, that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, both about you seeing a therapist and being on antidepressants. And I'm really struck by the fact that even though your first therapist did not really do much to support you, you went out and found another therapist Mm. because I feel like a common experience is having a bad experience in therapy and then thinking, this is mm -mm, not for me. This doesn't Mm -hmm. work. Therapists are terrible, dumb. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I think I'm lucky in some ways because my now husband's sister was training to be a therapist. And so he had a lot of understanding of the role of therapy in people's lives and, you know, mental health situations and what you can do in those situations. And I think he was very encouraging. Like when I would say like, I feel really, really bad. And like, I mean, he, he would see it like it would not be just me like describing it in the abstract. It'd be like me literally just curled up in a ball on the bed, pushing him away from me and just crying. Like mm. it was just very bad. And he would say things like, you know that I care about you, but I don't have the tools to help you. Like I can just be here, but I, I don't know what to do beyond that. But there are people who do know what to do. There are people who are trained in this. They have experience helping people. And he would really push me to get the tools you need. And it was never the stigmatized, like, you're so crazy, you need to go to therapy. It's like, mm. hey, these people are trained in helping you think about things differently. Maybe you should check it out. And, and I think that was right. a really different framing than the like stigmatized way that Asian Americans, especially immigrants, often think about mental health. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you had that voice in your life. Mm. And I want to go back briefly to something that has come up, I think a couple times, which is this inner dialogue that you've mentioned about expecting that you should be on top of the world and yet feeling miserable and then giving a slap to that voice and saying, no, you shouldn't feel miserable. You shouldn't mm. feel down. You You should be grateful. You have so much. I think that's a very relatable feeling, especially with COVID, with the pandemic. I feel like a mm. lot of people have reflected that sentiment of my life is relatively okay, and yet I'm miserable, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't deserve to feel this miserable. And that can just feel like such a paralyzing space to be in because you have all this emotion, this energy, and no permission to express it. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, I was just listening to a, a Brené Brown interview today where she was saying how we need to learn to not rank our suffering. Like, my suffering, my COVID situation is not as bad as theirs, so therefore I guess I'm okay. But then she's just like, it, you can't move forward if, if you just hold it like that. And I think that's very much what I was doing. But I, I think that's almost, I mean, that's such a a human thing, but particularly an Asian thing. Mm -hmm. You just keep everything inside. Like my mom always tells stories about how American people, American culture are just, it's just so different than Chinese culture because Americans actually say what they think. And, and for her, that's just like, what is going on? And she's like, if people in China come over and they're thirsty, like they just want to drink, if you were in America, they'd say like, hey, I'm thirsty. Do you have anything to drink? But if you were like in China, they'd be like, oh man, it's kind of hot today. Or like, oh, have you drank much today? Hmm. Kind of like no hint that they are thirsty or they want something to drink, but like hints of hints of hints that maybe thirst could be a possibility for people. And then like, <laughs> like maybe hopefully draw you out to get them a glass of water. And, and she's just like, China's just so different in that way. And I think that's, th that to me is a very similar thing where you just have to hide a lot of what you're actually feeling because the way that you're supposed to appear on the outside is the most important. And like, how do others see you is like the, the face that is the one that you should be really leaning into. And then the one behind the scenes is like, 
oh, you know, you, you deal with that in your own time. But that's not like, that's not the important part. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the important part is like what you project to others. And so I, I feel a lot of that with this voice of like, I have everything, I should be happy. And then like the slap of no, you can't think that you're not happy just, just for even a minute, because this is, this is the way you're supposed to look. And so like all of these, like, you know, stray thoughts, like bat them down. Like, um, it's just very much how I was like taught to. And I mean, I I think a lot of it too, is like how you, I even thought about emotions growing up. My mom's policy in raising me was basically if I'm crying, do it out of her sight. And it's, it's not her problem. I mean, it probably stemmed from a a good place when I was like three years old and like wanted a toy and then just like would not stop screaming about this toy. But then it, you know, lasted through high school and adulthood where it was like, oh, I can't show my mom how I'm really feeling. And Mm. if I do, it's like, like, she's just going to be mad and just be like, I don't want to see that. I'm sure if, if I told her this now, she'd be like, oh no, but you know, when you're crying about a toy when you're three, when you're crying about the state of your soul, when you're like in your twenties, that's a different thing. But like, I guess that lesson just never shifted for me. And so it's, it's funny now because all these years later, I have found I'm a very emotional person. I'm very much of a feeler. And my mom almost like never knew. She was like, what? Your emotion? Like, I didn't even know that about you. And I'm like, like, wow, that is true. Because I think I just, I felt like it was not something you showed. And that's a little bit of Asian American culture, a little bit of just her personality. But it's Mm -hmm. very much like, oh, you just keep this straight face. And that's the one that you are assuming is your identity. And then all the other stuff is just stuff in the basement that you hide down forever. Yeah. Yeah. Except not forever. Except, yeah, not forever. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. And I, so I relate to so much personally of what you're saying about mm. the high context culture and never being okay to state a need, mm-hmm. whether it's a physical need or an emotional need, you can hint at it aggressively, but it's shameful to point blank ask for it. Mm-hmm. And gosh, when you related that story about not crying in front of your mom, I just think it's a, it's a fine line between saying, hey, don't don't put on a display of emotion to manipulate me versus just don't put on a display of emotion, period. Mm-hmm. And yet I struggle a lot with saying, okay, Asian emotional suppression, bad. American mm. expressiveness, good. You know, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good point. There are definitely times when the American straightforward nature leans too much into, like, everything you feel is how you should feel. And it's like, mm. you can definitely have feelings. Like, I think, you know, people should totally feel their feelings. But I think maybe it goes too far of, like, therefore, I let every feeling I have at any minute dictate all of the choices I make. And you're like, well, right. maybe a little bit more tempered than that. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of imperfect cultural norms and messages, at what point did the anger that you were feeling towards yourself and this blame and feeling like, oh, I'm broken, I must be broken, at what point, if at all, do you think it shifted away from that towards an external source and saying, oh, I'm angry at this false expectation, I'm I'm not broken, but the messaging and the formula I was given didn't work, it stopped working. Yeah. I think a lot of work with my therapist at the time was very helpful in trying to reframe some of the truths that I come up with 
I remember one time she asked me, okay, if you can think back to sometime when you were still a student, what would it have been like for you to not get an A? And she's like, actually, what would it have been like for you to just completely fail? I think I was really quiet and I was like, I don't even understand the question you're asking me. Why would, why would life ever bring you to that circumstance? That's not what, like, like <laughs> things don't work like that. You just, like, what? Like, it didn't make any sense. And I think through a lot of the work that we did together, she helped me see, like, maybe it's okay if I don't always get the grade or, like, do the equivalent of getting the grade. I think my therapist helped me see that there were these structures that I was in that were unhealthy for me. And so that encouraged me enough to make a choice. So the next city we moved to, I was trying to decide between some different jobs. And long story short, I was choosing between three jobs at a time when I was still very, very unsure about myself. And one of the probably the proudest moral moments I've had in my life to date is when I turned down the job that had all of the markings of what I would have previously called a good job, like the success and the money. It was like this cool, exciting startup in this healthcare space that already had a huge runway and like lots of important people working on it and like all of this great stuff. But I was just like, I, I cannot do that. Like, I cannot take a job like this. Like, it's just feeding all of the monsters like in my soul that are trying to like take over. And so I ended up choosing another job that was lesser in all of the ways that I just mentioned. And I, I think it was huge because I would, I mean, I second guess myself all the time. I was like, and I made a huge mistake. Like, I want to go back. Like, maybe I can still get that job. Maybe I can, you know, find something else similar. Like, I needed to go, like, go back and do all of these things to like right this wrong of like taking this wrong step. And like, I mean, he, like, my husband would just, like, still boyfriend at the time would be there and just say, like, no, there, there are better things out there for you. And like, mm. You're better than this. There is a lot of blessing that can be found in doing something that is not all of like just caving into like your deepest impulses. And so I think that was a huge, huge support was like in the times when I would doubt myself and say like, I've made a huge mistake. This is all going to go terribly wrong to have someone who knew me really well and like was there a lot of the time just to say like, nope, you're doing the right thing. Keep going. Like it feels scary right now, but it's okay. And something I've seen in a lot of my friends who ended up making different choices than I have, who are still in uh, places where they're still chasing after prestige and status and success and all of that. Like not to say that that's, you know, morally like the worst thing to do. Like maybe for them, that is what they want. But something I've noticed that's different between people who have chosen an alternative route and people who kind of stayed on the mainstream route is that a lot of people who have stayed on the mainstream route don't have very many people in their life who haven't stayed on the mainstream route. And so there's just, there's no, like, no people who have lived the life of choosing something different and, like, proving to you it's possible and that you can be happy and, like, even, like, flourishing in this alternative path. And so maybe that's not the reason they stay, but I, I think that's probably a big part of it. Oh, I think you're so right. It's that lack of imagination. Yeah. And... I think this is exactly how it plays out at elite colleges, like this compound effect of academic elitism and the Asian American identity immigrant success story playing right into the hands of that. And with an yeah. intensity of that is my key to survival is to be excellent yeah. in this land. 
I can't yeah. just be average. I need to justify my existence. Yeah, no, exactly. And then and then it turns into this thing where we're almost only allowing ourselves to, to funnel into one of these, like, you know, five careers that is acceptable to, to our parents and the people around us. And I mean, Marina Keegan's even artichokes have doubts really expounds on that. Um, in her essay, she talks about, oh, I'm at Yale and uh, I talked to a bunch of freshmen and they have all these crazy different interests. But then by the time they're seniors, there's just something in the system and something in us, I guess, that makes it so that we don't want to, you know, close any doors. And so so we just want to do the thing that will keep all our options open, that proves that we're still elite in the next phase so that if I want to do something else later, I can still do it and prove all of this. And I mean... This is pretty much exactly where, where I was. And, and I love William Dereshowitz's book, Excellent Sheep. Because, I mean, if, if I had a spirit animal in a book, that would be my spirit book. That book just describes where I was so perfectly. And I know there's a lot of critique on the book, and it doesn't describe everybody's experience, but it definitely described mine. And so it just really, really spoke to me. The book paints these very high-achieving, very stellar college students as people who are able to achieve so much and yet don't have a sense for why they're doing it other than because it's just the thing that they should be doing. And again, this is not everybody, but it was definitely me. Yeah, I think you and I both having been there and also having wrestled with these questions, I feel a lot of empathy for people who are in these positions. And I think both of us are not saying, oh, anyone in these professions, you should just quit your job. But I think we are saying there should be space, there should be permission to have a curiosity, to have a dialogue, to have imagination for what else your life could be. And, And I think we both know and have lived that leaving your high paying tech job is not easy. It's a complicated (laughs) process fraught with a lot of resistance, self-doubt, sleepless nights, Mm -hmm. crying parents, you know. So I guess I just want to say we're not saying everybody quit your job. (laughs) Yeah. So. Yes. But I am so glad that you're on here telling your story and yeah, the whole process that came with it. I think one point I want to spend a little time on is what you're saying about support systems and how Mm. on the one hand they can be such a blessing it is really hard to go through any process let alone really deep identity excavation it's hard to do that by yourself but at the same time support systems can go either way and Mm. sometimes the people that are supporting you are not necessarily evolving or growing at the same pace or in the same direction as you Mm. um I want to ask you also, where was your relationship with your mom in all this, through Mm. this process? Yeah, I think my relationship with my mom was probably the hardest tugs that I had to, to pull. I think something I learned to do in teenage years that then progressed on through college and then beyond was like, not try to worry my mom. And I think that's a very Asian American sentiment. This attitude of like, oh, no, 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 you don't worry. You don't, you don't worry anybody. Uh, and so <laughs> then you grow up in that culture and you learn is like what you should be doing. And so in the season when I was working for that big tech company, it was me feeling terrible inside. But then whenever I talked to my mom on the phone, because, you know, I didn't live in the same place, I would just put on a happy face and just say like, oh, I'm good. Things are good. Yeah. I mean, work is hard, but you know, like it's good. And so then it was a huge shock to her when I would start saying things like, maybe I want to be a teacher. Oh, maybe I want to be a nurse. Maybe I want to do all these other things. And she's like, 
she would just go in a panic of like, oh, my daughter is not understanding the full complexities of adulthood. And she says she wants to do all these things, but she doesn't actually know she wants to do all these things. She's just being ridiculous because I didn't bring her along this journey with me and tell her how terrible I was feeling. Mm. So she didn't support me in the beginning because I didn't give her a chance to really understand what was going on. It wasn't until after I had my episode in the ED when she came to visit me and saw for the first time how miserable I was. And then she was like, wow, this is really bad. But I think for a long time, she still thought it's my daughter not understanding what it means to be an adult. And right now I've told her what I think, which is basically, you know, like appreciate the job you have, you have it so good, but she's not listening. And so I just need to let her make her own mistakes and eventually she'll come back to me. And so like in her mind, her way of living and like the way that she brought me up was still the right way. And I was just having to take a detour and she just accepted me taking the detour. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, multiple jobs later where she saw how miserable I was in the jobs she thought were good and how happy I was in other jobs that had nothing to do with what she thought was good, that she was like, oh, maybe this isn't actually a detour that you're going to come back and agree with me, but maybe we're just different. Like, maybe we just are different people with different personalities in different cultures in different eras, and I actually don't know what is going to be good for you, so maybe I can let you make the choice. And that came after years and years of tension and her, like, trying to hear me out, but then kind of, like, still trying to say her piece and, like, convince me, like, underhandedly that what she was saying was better than what I was doing. Um, years and years of that. But I give her huge credit for eventually yeah. getting to a place where I would say right now she has said things to me like, you just need to be happy. Then when you do things, of course, do them well, do them earnestly, do them with uh, your whole heart in it, but just be happy. It doesn't matter what the money is. It doesn't matter what the status is. Just do what you feel like you need to do. And I'm like, wow, mom, you have changed. Yeah. Yeah. That is an immense paradigm shift that I imagine required a whole bunch of humility and generosity of thought and empathy towards you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think she would have come to that shift if it weren't for your own journey and and growth? No, I don't think so. I think yeah. it was years into me doing these more, I guess, alternative jobs and like not, you know, hardcore math science or like in this like big tech company, so prestigious, like, and me loving my teaching job. And then she was just like, what? Like... How could you love something so not prestigious as teaching when you've experienced the joy and the majesty of working at like this huge, amazing tech company? And it was just like, I think it was her like just seeing that it wasn't a phase. And it was like, no, 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 I'm actually happier doing this. Like seeing like, oh, maybe other ways of living. They're not how I would live. Like, I think she would not make any changes if she were to recommend them to herself. But I think she started to acknowledge that like, Maybe other people are different from her and her time and all of Mm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it was never that your happiness was not important to her. It's just that happiness was always the same thing as this prestigious, successful, high achieving. They're the same thing, you know, happiness and success. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking us through your journey and your story today of growing up in this high achievement oriented academic excellence culture, going through college, and then landing your first job and kind of having that fall apart and experiencing some really low lows for yourself. And then also picking yourself back up and finding out what it means to research yourself, both with people that you love as well as professional help. So it's quite a story. And I'm wondering how, if this is where you've been in the past, especially over the past five, six, seven years of your life, where would you say that you are today, here and now? Yeah. On my good days, I like to think about this narrative of my life and wrap it up in this nice little package and say, oh, look at the sad, sad person I was back then. I have grown so much and I've become this new version of self that doesn't define my identity based off of how much I'm achieving or how successful I am in the world's definition, but, you know, have valued trying to have inner peace and growth and like, you know, really achieving who like being the best version of myself and all of that, you know, hippy dippy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, um, I am so, so happy with where I have come. And I think on my bad days, I am like, wow, look at everything I gave up. Like I had so much in that first job out of college. I didn't even understand. I didn't even appreciate. So like maybe all that to say, I feel like at different days, different parts uh, have different weight in my heart. (laughs) So some days the parts that are just like, you did it. Good thing that you shed aside all of those notions that were bad for you and made these hard choices like good like those parts are like more alive and I'm like yeah but then other days it's like oh like I look back with regret and sorrow and I'm just like oh I just didn't know how good I I really didn't know how good I had it and I think these parts were always in me before and they just have grown and morphed and I'm assuming they will always be with me in the future like I I don't think it's realistic to aspire to a day where I 100% am like I made the right choice I think I'm gonna have that part of me that's just like Ah, oh, but maybe if I'd stayed there. Look at my friends who stayed. Like, they weren't happy at first, but they're happier now. Like, yeah, look at that. I could have been one of them and been making a lot of money. Like, combo, best of both worlds. Um, <laughs> and I think there's totally times where I think that and I have those moments and then I get really dissatisfied with my current job and all of that. And uh, I think maybe that's just part of it is like, I'm never going to shed all of my anxieties and apprehensions, but I... I think I can learn to have a stronger sense of acceptance with my choices and appreciation for the fact that I can make choices. And actually, um, there's a TED Talk by this philosopher, Ruth Chang, that I like that's all about hard choices. And she talks about how a lot of times choices in life are not quite like, oh, this is better than another, but it's just on a par. And so should I live in the city or should I live in the country? There's good things about one and bad things about the other and vice versa. And so... When you make those choices, her framework for how do you think about these choices, it's not about choosing the one that's better or worse or right or wrong. It's about having the agency to recognize that when you have these hard choices, choosing these choices is making you who you are. I think something 
I recognize is there was no right choice to leave that job or a wrong choice. I could have stayed longer. I could have left earlier. And some people I know did all of the above. And it's not like that was better or worse in any way. It was just, we have just become different people because of our choices. And so uh, there are some people who have made their way staying in those prestige oriented spaces. There are some people who made their way in very much the opposite where it's not about the prestige at all. It's about the work. And I, I would, I mean, I would put you in that, Rachel. And like that, I would say maybe I'm somewhere in between where I've, I've made my way kind of mixing a little bit of both, but trying to reject, but then also kind of trying to still morph in some of those old values. And it's just, I just maybe have more humility now of what it means to live a life and to live a good life and recognizing that there's never going to be a right choice. It's just, you just choose to be a different self than you would otherwise. Mm. I really appreciate that reflection because to me, it seems like to come out and say, yes, this was the right choice or that was the wrong choice with so much certainty or to feel haunted by this question of, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right choice? That would almost be to play right back into that very first mindset that we were talking mm. about, that rigidity, that narrow, simplistic, this is what you do. There is a right answer. There is a one and done. Mm-hmm. And that will relieve you of all the mental burden of having to actually make choices and live your right. life. Right. right, right, right. Well, in closing, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, and I'm sure that your story is going to resonate with many of our listeners so thank you so much for being on here today. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for just creating this whole whole endeavor. Yep. Well, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Thanks. Goodbye. Hey. Thanks for listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe or give us a follow. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, comments, or you would like to share your story with us, send us an email at misfortunecookiespodcast at gmail.com. Bye.